honestly don't have we I just didn't have that representation. You know, I didn't have that representation and and I guess it means a lot for me to be able to turn around and pour into the next generation that's coming because um, I know what I didn't have. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. This is more than a moment. It's a movement. Hey, it's Danielle. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. Our goal is to share the stories of 500 Black educators. We will celebrate the impact and achievements, learn from the lessons and challenges, and highlight the important roles that educators play in all of our lives. I'm excited to welcome today's guest to the show. As a do now, please tell us your name, your role in education, and answer the question, why do Black educators matter? All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Courtney McLean. I am the director of diversity and inclusion at the um, University of Oklahoma College of Business. And the question was, why do we? Why do matter? black? Yep. Yeah, why do black educators matter? Um, first thing that comes to mind is the fact that I haven't had too many in my life. Um, so you know, uh, for the most part, when it comes to black folk, whatever we don't see, we don't believe. Uh, we don't believe in, and we don't. Um, believe that it can um, become in fruition for us. Uh, so I grew up not seeing too many black men in the classroom. So I never had aspirations to be that. Uh, I always wanted to go to the NBA and I would, wasn't even that good. <laughs> but all my <laughs> friends, all my friends were playing basketball. So that's what I wanted to do. Um, but when it came to mentorship, when it came to tutoring, uh, when it came to just uh, turning around and trying to educate somebody behind me that, that I cared about first because I have a lot of little cousins. So I was always tutoring. I was always mentoring. I was always trying to look out for somebody right behind me, um, like an age and grade. Um, but when it comes to uh, wanting to be an educator, I never, never wanted to. It's funny. I have to give my mom's props because the older I get, the more I have to tell her that she was right about something <laughs> because uh, it, it, it all comes full circle when you become an adult and you, you, re you realize that your parents were always right when you were that teenager that uh, knew everything and yeah. knew nothing at all. Uh, she always told me that, that I should be a teacher. Even, I want to say, in grade school, about fourth, fifth grade, she was telling me that I should be a teacher. And I was like, man, teachers don't make no money. <laughs> so, But as I, as I grew up, you know, and just seeing the, the passion I had to give back and to do for others, um, that came naturally, um, but as in wanting to be a teacher, never wanted to be because I didn't see one. So it's very important that um, us as black men, particularly, that we get in these classrooms um, because one, um, to be honest, young black men, they, they don't show a lot of respect um, for women. So in the classroom, they're rowdy, they're disrespectful because they don't have that authority figure um, that they can look up to and, and, and at times respect and fear. They don't have that in the classroom. Uh, so a lot of that discipline is lacking. Uh, so it's very important for us as black men to, to step in the classroom and be um, a very um, vigilant and intentional um, on putting some putting some exact type of mentorship and intentional just visibility, visibility uh, for students. And, I, and I'm particularly talking about black men. That's a lot of where my uh, motivation goes to. And I want to get back, I want to touch on that because you just made me think about a lot of things. One, the role of black men in the classroom. I do think it's really important because we see, when we do see black men in education, a lot of the times they are in non-teaching positions. Right. So they're disciplinarians or they're on the custodial facilities team or they're an athletic person. But to have that black man mentorship and academic expertise yes. is is needed yes and it, and it gives and it gives the um the vision well the 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 vision that black men can be dynamic yeah uh, we don't have we, we just don't have to be athletes we don't have to be like the 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 bulked up uh disciplinary that's that's uh beating down doors like like lean on me with mm -hmm. the, like like with the bat we don't have to be that figure and we can be one that is a manly man and also an intellect. Um, and, and we don't praise that figure enough in, uh, amongst our uh, uh, black atmosphere. 
Now, your current title is what now? Uh, Director of Diversity and Inclusion. Perfect. A title that I love very much. I love that work. And I know it's such a broad, broad title. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. How did you become the Director of Diversity and Inclusion? Walk us through your educational journey. So education-wise, um, I always wanted to be in corporate America. I wanted to be in corporate America until I got there. <laughs> and I realized it was not for me. Uh, it was just boring. It was boring, and all my passions has always been directly related to giving back community outreach um, and writing um, and teaching. So, you know, I started thinking after I got my bachelor's, after I got my master's, once I got my master's in business, I still didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, so I went to work in different fields. I started out at a credit union. Uh, I went from a, um, I, well, I actually started in undergrad as a, as a teller then a loan officer, then a mortgage expert, and uh, also credit expert. Um, but it's funny because even in those circles, I was teaching, but I was, I was focusing on financial literacy, but I was still teaching. Um, after that, I got tired of that and wanted to make more money. So I jumped into uh, leadership in the oil field. And I was just always tired of being away. You know, the money was crazy. <laughs> the money was crazy. But, you know, that that industry is so up and down anyway. I actually got fired on my day off. <laughs> yeah, in <laughs> yes. real life. <laughs> yes, real life. Um, so I was a I was a, a, a shift leader and me and about 40 of my guys um, got laid off on our rotation out because they the company at that time, they wanted to save money because they were paying for our commute they was paying for our um uh, little stipends and they were paying for our stay there in, in a in a local hotel man i went to the bahamas with my wife and came back and you know how you turn your phone off right and then <laughs> when you when you uh when you out, out the country out and everything. yeah <laughs> so we went in the bahamas i come back i turn my phone on and uh, i just get rushed with a whole bunch of emails a whole bunch of text messages i'm like this got to be fake so i go and check my email email and get that layoff paperwork <laughs> and uh, I said okay all right well uh I'm not going back because I don't even like being away like that so you know what can I do so my uh I'm a I'm a Kappa Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity Incorporated my husband uh, is also a Kappa oh well lucky you <laughs> <laughs> no but but you know so uh so I actually went on uh Facebook and was making fun of it, like, dang, I got fired on my day off. And Frank just was hitting me up, you know, uh, asking for my resume and such. And I, and I was thinking in my head, what can I do where I can enjoy talking to people, make some quick money, and um, and still be kind of like in a financial literacy type of, of role? Because I was still focusing on finance, uh, financial literacy. I was like, man, let me go sell these cars. Because I wanted, be, I wanted to be a finance manager at that time. Man, I started selling cars, and it was just like, it was just lying. Mm. <laughs> you just lie. You just lie. All you became the sleazy car day. salesman for real. <laughs> and I was, oh, oh, for six months because they wanted me to sell before they put me in finance department. Mm. So they wanted me to get the sales experience first. So for six months, because honestly, it was fun. It was like, besides the besides the lying part. <laughs> It was fun because it was literally a department full of brothers, mm -hmm. and it was and it was about five of us that was campus from just all over the um, Oklahoma City area, and um, it was like going to work and kicking it every day. You're just kicking it, but but the bad thing about it was the real bad thing about it was I wasn't making any money because mm. I'm so used to telling people the right way to buy a car. So so instead of instead of a customer coming onto the lot and I hit them over the head with something overpriced. I'm telling them to go back to the credit union and get approved. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm telling them, I'm giving them credit advice. I'm giving them all the things I learned from being a credit, uh, being the credit union service. Um, I'm telling them the right way to do it. And when you do that as a car salesman, you not gonna, you're not going to make no real money. Yeah, that's that you're doing the wrong stuff. <laughs> right. You're supposed to be right. focused on making my... money, not educating the customers. <laughs> exactly. And I was shooting myself in the foot. Yeah. <laughs> so... It was six months of me having a good time and making no money at all. So uh, I ended up going into, at this time, I think I was 
man, I think I was broke. I was looking at I was looking at the Sally Mae kicking in. Like, all right, man, I'm out of my masters. I'm done with my masters now. They hit me over the head trying to get this money for the student loans back. Yep. What am I gonna do? Um, and at this time, teaching definitely was nowhere on my mind. So I got into the army. I got into the army, but I was National Guard, so you know, just the weekends and the summers. And um, and at that same time, I applied for um, a Boeing Aerospace uh, as a contract negotiator. So between Boeing as a contract negotiator and in the army, part of the engineer battalion. Between those two, I did that for seven years. Mm. And I hated both of them. Mm. <laughs> I hated both of them. And my aha moment was literally one of my team leads at Boeing. This is about after four years of being at Boeing. One of my team leads, older gentleman, said, you know, I've been at this job for 25 years and I hate it. I hate what I do. And I just, man, it was just a punch in the chest, like, to be at a job where you hate what you do and you've been there for over two decades. Yeah. It, it can't be me. Yeah. It can't be me. <laughs> Not at all. So, so you know, I ended up staying at Boeing seven, uh, three more years. But at that fourth year, I started really thinking about what are my passions? What would I do for free and how to monetize that? Yep. And, and, and at Tinker Federal Credit Union, uh, the credit union that I was working at in the past, in, a, in my undergrad, I had, um, they started this diversity initiative where they would go out into the neighborhoods, they would go into the black neighborhoods and the brown neighborhoods and, uh, and give these uh, financial literacy workshops. And I was one of the, um, the leads on that. And um, I just fell in love with that. So I continued to do that type of work on the side for free. Mm -hmm. Even when I left the credit union, I would still link up with different nonprofits and do that type of stuff for free. Uh, so when I was at Boeing that fourth year and I started thinking about all the different things I want to do that I would do for free anyway, which is write poetry, perform poetry. That's when I started writing my book. Um, and then also um, uh, thinking about how I can monetize my passion for wanting to do community outreach. Um, so literally I was tired of Boeing so much that, <laughs> that I quit Boeing to go to Tinker Air Force Base to do this exact same thing. I just wanted to get out of, I just wanted to get out of Boeing. I just wanted to switch, uh, different jobs, but it was, it was the same industry. Mm -hmm. Lit literally the first two weeks, you know, after, you know, after you go through HR, you go through your, your little, uh, new hire phase, then it sets in what your job is, you know, mm -hmm. sets in, man, about my second week, I said, oh, I'm going to hate it here. <laughs> I said, this is exactly like my old job. I said, I'm not going to enjoy this. And, and in 2015, one of my best friends, he actually opened the first diversity department at OU uh, within a college, within a specific uh, college under the, the College of Business. He actually opened it. So in 2015, I was there. When, when he cut the ribbon and everything and I had been there giving my free labor for him for the, for, for the last, at that time, for the last five years. And so I was there so often at OU, which is, which is my alma mater. Mm -hmm. um, but I was there so often people thought I was on payroll anyway, because mm -hmm. I, because I was using all of my PTO and all of my, um, all of my sick leave to go out there and, and, you know, speak to classes, do community outreach, do uh, different uh, student conferences. So I was just, man, I always tell people, if you, if you got a nine to five, um, at, at the end of your nine to five, you're not tired. You, you're just uninspired. You know, you have to be able to go to that nine to five and still after the nine to five, push it. And when you use sick leave and use PTO, don't spend it all day watching Netflix at the house. Use it really being intentional about making something happen in your life. And that's what happened because I didn't even apply for this current role at OU. They called me and I, and I, you know, I give that all to God because I, I, I didn't even think they would want somebody that hasn't had the official nine to five experience in a role, but I had so much community outreach experience in DNI and, um, and I, they, I, they just saw my value and, and the students asked, for, the student really asked for me friend after uh, four years of being there. He ended up moving to Dallas with his wife, and um, and the it was it was vacant, and they called me to come and interview for it. After they interviewed a few people, it just wasn't a good fit, and they wasn't feeling it. <laughs> uh, 
And uh, and the students pretty much asked for me. It was like, well, Mr. McLean is always here anyway. Why don't you give him the job? <laughs> See? And so the students really held me down in that sense. That's a perfect example of your gifts making room for you. Oh, amen. You know, and chance favoring <laughs> the prepared mind. Like you were ready for those opportunities before they even manifested. Like even when you were doing the educational work in the car dealership, you were doing things that was against that job, but it's literally what you do, which is educate and empower people (laughs) to make the best decisions for themselves. So it's like you found your way into this role that was clearly designed for you. Yeah. And, and literally every day, uh, (laughs) except for now during this quarantine, (laughs) but you know, every day I'm, I'm mentoring students helping them find um, internships, helping them find scholarships, helping them with the professional development, interview, interview skills, resume cover letter. You know, I'm helping them with the professional development every day. Um, So I love that part of my job. Uh, Other part of my job when it comes to um, handling issues, diversity issues, inclusive equity issues, handling those type of issues. um, I can appreciate doing that type of work as well because I rather the student focus on being a student and not have to worry about, okay, this happened in my class. Now I have to go to these legal meetings. Now I have to go to these board meetings where they're talking about what happened to me, um, basically going to trial uh, because a, um, a faculty or staff member didn't treat me with respect. And, and I can take that off of their shoulders and be able to go to bat for them. I really appreciate that part of my job as well. Tell me about the shared identity you have with your students. Well, <laughs> first is the is the sheer like representation. Um, what's funny is <laughs> they were people were going to bat to put a white lady in my position, and I literally told because we didn't have an official dean at that time. I told the interim dean uh, even before I was hired. I told him, "Look, a smart." educated young person of color that's coming to this campus will not take you seriously with a department of diversity and inclusion with a white lady running it. It's, it's simple. They, and then if they have some quote unquote woke parents, the parents are going to laugh at you. Like you want my son, you want my daughter, black and brown descent <laughs> to be in this space uh, and want a sense of belonging and and you're going to tell me you have representation when one I don't see too many professors that look like my kids um, and your director of diversity is a white lady. It, it, it's not it's not realistic for them to to set that up and then believe that recruitment is going to increase when it comes to a diverse in, um, recruitment. It's just not realistic. So I told him, I said, look, even if you don't hire me, you got to hire somebody black or brown. And um and you know i got the position i'm glad (laughs) that you said that i'm glad that your students advocated for you because i think you said it perfectly earlier i said that i love that title that diversity and inclusion and equity title but you gotta look beyond the title because lots of people will put that title on something and have no practices and have no intentions on backing that up but they got the title and they got a placeholder (laughs) in there and 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 even even talking about the uh intentionality about it like i told my interim dean i said um i said you have to understand about uncle toms as well and he, of course he didn't know what uncle toms was <laughs> so i broke i broke down uncle toms i broke i broke down white fragility i broke down white privilege to him i mean these are all terms that honestly people outside of us they they don't they don't they don't care to know about because it doesn't affect them um, you know, I'm, I'm giving them ex- the examples of have you ever been in a space where you were as a white man? Have you ever been in a space with 150 black students or black people? Now, in that space, you would probably if you're not if not if you're not used to that, you would probably feel uncomfortable. Right. And I've, I've asked a few white men this that's faculty and staff. All of them said, oh, yeah, I would feel uncomfortable. I said, OK, that would be one instance for you. Our students, our our, uh, our minority students have to deal with that every single day when they go to a PWI. 
every single day. So that one instance that you haven't even felt yet and you are already saying you would be uncomfortable with, they have to come to a PWI and feel that every single day within their dorms, organizations, in their classrooms, just walking around campus. They have to feel that. Um, So why wouldn't you think that representation would be a huge deal? Because if they're already and I call it an ocean, if they're in an ocean of white folks on this campus and they don't have one teacher, one professor that looks like them and they barely have staff members that look like them, they're going to feel uncomfortable. And and when you walk into a space like that, sometimes the regular Joe is going to have an inferiority complex. So if I if I'm a young student, the first time I'm really being away from uh, from home, I don't feel welcome. Uh, I feel like white people are talking at me and not to me uh, in all my classrooms. I'm in this ocean of white folks. Um, I, I seem to don't have anything in common with these white folks. And then and then my and then all and then everything is culturally biased because I, I mean, you think about it like like professors, they they do complain that the young black kids don't have any critical thinking um, uh, skills. But think about the, think about where we come from. You know, if our if our environment is underdeveloped uh, with, with low funding, then the high school they come from, even if with, with a good GPA and a great ACT, they're probably, their study habits are probably lacking. And then when you talk about critical thinking, they're not, they're, they, they didn't come from a space where critical thinking may have really been pushed. So when they get to college, uh, a critical thinking assignment is probably maybe the first time they ever even had something like that. And none of that is, is thought of. And, and then in some of these business courses, some of these professors, these white professors, they're speaking to the kids like they should have been known about these different uh, business principles. But how? How when a lot of these kids are coming from the hood, underprivileged uh, type of situations? Parents are not in the home like that. They got to work multiple jobs, not even absentee parents, but, but parents just not being able to uh, pour into things that they don't even know. But, but a white student, you know, a lot of these are fluent. I saw some numbers not too long ago that the average student that goes to the University of Oklahoma uh, or a different PWI, I mean, most most students come from a, a, a household that maybe at least six figures, at mm. least six figures. So that's most of the students. But the African-American population is less than 10 percent at, at most PWIs. And I went to a PWI. I went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. There was 10% black people when I was there. Right. Right. And see, I thought I thought ours was 10%. But when I look deeper into the numbers, the 10% is like covering from the 100% of, of, of total students. The 10% is just the brown people. Yep. <laughs> it's not even African-Americans. It's just the brown people. Yep. So, you know, you got to you got to consider um, uh, Indian backgrounds, um, uh, Hispanic you got to consider all all of that is really within the ten percent, <laughs> and then you have the the African Americans is lonely like maybe four or five percent within that ten percent. Um, so just just given given all that information, it when I first walked into this space, it really blew my mind how white educators they just either they're oblivious or they simply don't care. And I don't want to I don't want to say that they simply don't care. But they damn sure oblivious. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's oblivious. And I think it has to do with self-awareness. When you're coming from a place of privilege, you don't necessarily have to be aware of yourself and your bias. But if you understand that the students that you are engaging with come from a different context or background, like it was insulting to me to hear like they don't have critical thinking skills. I would argue that they do have critical thinking skills. They just may not have the exposure to this content that you are yes. asking them about. Yes. And so right. if you going to make it this sweeping statement that they don't have X, no, they do have X. But if you want to introduce them to new concepts, you need to recognize that you're introducing them to new concepts. But like you said, when you when you even look at class, there were studies that was done about the number of words that babies are exposed to from birth mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how, you know, like that leads to academic outcomes that has to do with level of education, all of that, like all of these things work together. This is just one of many stories 
and we want to keep the conversation going. Follow us on Instagram at blackeducators.matter and visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.com. Now, back to our conversation. Yeah, and, and they're not, and, and when you say, like, when you speak directly to, like, white privilege and being exposed, like, so, so when I, so when I was in these, these business environments, uh, in the aerospace industry, I would, re- I would walk into a room where I'd be the only brown face, not just man, not just African American, I mean, only brown face. And, and I had, to, I thought about that every single time that happened. But for, but for a white man, they don't ever have to think about that. Ever have to think about that. And that's the same in higher education. So, so you know, this whole concept of white fragility to to uh, either make white people feel like the victim, which which they like, they love to victimize themselves, or or they walk into spaces never having to 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 even think about, oh, am I the only white person there? They never have to do that Mm-mm. because because any type of space that they're going into. With a whole bunch of black folks, they're voluntarily being there. We have to be in spaces all the time. We don't volunteer. It's just the way of the world and the world of higher education and corporate America, where we're in these spaces, not by not by really choice, uh, but to make a living and <laughs> and and to be educated. Mm-hmm. And we are seeing that. Dang, I'm the only black person in this class. I'm the only black person um, uh, in this in this board meeting. Have you ever been the only black person right. in the board meeting rec- and they start using phrases that you have no clue what they like? Oh, they said having a dog in the fight. I was like, <laughs> what are y'all so, talking about? Right, so I, right, so yeah. So those particular, those particular saying, you know, black folks don't say that. No, we don't. For the most, for the most, you know, for the most part. So, so, um, I see that in the classroom. I see like, um, uh, like, like, I ain't, I'm not gonna bring his name up, but <laughs> um, a white professor I know that uh, that teaches uh, business principles. He uses phrases like that all the time, and he speaks directly to investments. Like, and he's a freshman. He's speaking directly to to freshmen. Like, you're supposed to already know about investments. H- how? How sway? How? How? And and and, and the white kids. The white kids, they, if the, and, you know, for the most part, you know, I, I hate to generalize, but I'm going to generalize. <laughs> most of these white people in these spaces come from uh, predominantly affluent families. So, so uh, little Trevor has been around and politicking and networking on golf courses since yep. probably he was 10 years old. Yep. It's that dinner so, table talk that they talk about. Exactly. He's, he's used to those discussions. Now, you want to talk about critical thinking. Want to talk about critical thinking? Little little LeBron understood. Uh, he he had the awareness. He had the self awareness to be able to get from school as a latchkey kid to get home to make himself and his little brother some dinner while his mom worked two jobs. I mean, like those are the critical thinking, or to be able to put something together when you look in the refrigerator and don't see much but some spam, and you and you able to put that together. That's critical thinking as well. Yep. But giving giving uh given consideration to uh environment things going on with oneself that's what that's what makes up your capacity so if i'm so if i'm used to dealing with a, a terrible situation um low income single mother and I, i'm fending for me and my my siblings thinker at that but you put me in a in a white space i don't have no reference point of that no i have any reference points to None at all. So you can't, you can't, uh, and that's and that's one thing that my students tell me at OU. It's it's too many professors that have been teaching a certain way for such a long time, and they and they won't change it. Mm-hmm. So it makes it hard for minorities to really grasp the concepts um, when they don't have no point of reference. Tell us about you the know? Black Male Initiative, because this is why things like this matter. So the Black Male Initiative um, um, started in the Office of Diversity and Inclusion at the University of Central Oklahoma by Dr. Stevie uh, Johnson. And what's so dope about it is he was part of the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and he just wanted to, with his own initiative, he just wanted to create something big for black males. Um, and so so it's like uh, the, the group goes around to different schools in Oklahoma City uh, area 
well, Oklahoma area because we get we get uh, uh, students from Tulsa and, and such as well. And we, we recruit um, black males to come to a conference. And when they come to the conference, oh, man, it's, it's just so dope. So you have a full room of like so many different schools from Oklahoma. Um, and it's like maybe 300, 300 young men all suited up looking fly. You know, and and for you to see that, it, I love you too, baby. <laughs> Your daughters was not gonna let you stay nah, away. No, nah, they wouldn't. They That's wouldn't. So sweet. <laughs> the little one probably about to come in here now. That's so sweet. I got two girls, four and three. Oh, and they and they some divas, <laughs> <laughs> divas. Um, but like you know, just imagine three hundred young men between fifteen, really fifteen and fifteen to eighteen, and just fresh. You know, everybody with their own style, but everybody's, you know, supposed to be uh, shirt and tie. So everybody just super fresh. Right. And uh, we cover things from uh, it's different sessions, it's different breakout sessions within the conference. And we'll have a keynote, um, uh, one, one keynote that we had, um, Dr. Uh, Chris Emden. Uh, do you know him? Hip hop education. Uh, he teaches out of, I want to say, New Jersey. Uh, but he, he's famous for uh, uh, writing uh, for white white folks who teach in the hood and the rest of y'all too mm. uh the the, rea- the reality uh pedagogy and urban education and he does a lot he's done a lot of ted talks um he's just super dope and and i actually took some took the took some of the way that he does some of his lectures which which he has like a rap background but education wise he's like man yeah, he's like as a doctorate in education and masters in chemistry and biochemistry and stuff. Um, just a real dope black man. Uh, but some, but some of the way he does his lectures is because he has a hip hop background. He'll spit some of his self written, um, self written stuff. And what I'll do is, uh, and then he breaks it down to how it matches up with the lesson that he wants to present. So after I saw him do that, like in 2016 for the Black Male Initiative Conference one year, I started doing that with my poetry. Um, and it just works dope because you, you, I walk into a class and I just start spitting and I do my whole performance. And then I start breaking down um, the quotes in my poem with like African-American social identity. And um, and just the way that the parallels between those quotes, making it something that was just enjoyable for the ear and making it something that you can actually learn from. And, you know, cognitively, that's how we that's how we learn rap songs within a couple of times of just hearing it because it's to a beat or it's to some type of rhythm. So I kind of use that same method when it comes to the poetry um, in my classrooms. So a lot of times I'll come into a classroom and I'll just start spitting. And then afterwards, I'll break down little quotes um, and then match it up with social identity theory and how we see ourselves and how social engineering affects our um, our own self-perception and just different things like that. That's 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 where my passion is when it comes to maybe uh, in the future being published within the annals of higher education. It'll probably be something along the lines of of my uh, my poetry and then research into um, the African-American social identity theory and, and psychosis and, and my hypothesis of, of why we feel the way we do about ourselves. You show demonstrating the dynamic, dynamicness of the black man, ain't you? Because we, we have gone from <laughs> businessman, banker, the oil industry, working DEI, still being a poet. And we have not yet got on Brothers for Progress. So tell us, I, I, I think, um, uh, you know, to my own horn a little bit, I think I've always kind of tried to be a renaissance man. Um, um, I don't know where it comes from. I, I honestly didn't see too many men like that growing up. I was raised around either pastors, pimps, <laughs> or hustlers. And that's really all I can really remember growing up around. And, you know, I always, I always tell young black men that the men that you're around, you don't have to be just like them, you know, because honestly, how some of these men move, I can understand if some of these young bucks be like, man, y'all some suckers. I see. <laughs> I can see how I can see how a lot of when I go to like. Um, um, so I'm the official poet for the Oklahoma City Police Department Community Outreach Program. And we go to different juvenile centers and uh, and mentor. And uh, we do this whole man up 
initiative where we spend the weekend with them and we just go through these different um man just different manhood and development type of uh little sessions and um and even within that i see how young boys can look at certain men and be like eh, he's not too authentic and, and young people pick up you know young people pick up on that so fast real fast authentic. real fast you know, if, you, if you're just there for the photo op oh they can spot it out <laughs> they can spot it out so so even even some 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 whack men that I've done community outreach stuff with in the past. I'm still even though I I basically use that man for that opportunity. I got with those young people and I still have relationships with those young people. It was just the uh, the vehicle that took me to that young person happened to be a sucker dude who was just about to photo op. <laughs> and it does suck though because especially when we talking about doing DEI work, there are some yeah. people who are not for the movement and that oh, sucks. No. Oh no, they they just suckers. They they see it as different ways to get that that come up or to get some money from whatever or or they just like being the face of it. They really not into it. They just want to be the face of something. And I've seen even within the little community of Oklahoma City that's really doing this type of work, I've seen too many people like that. Too many. And um and, and then the ones that are doing great stuff. Shout out to my homeboy, DeMarco Robinson. He's been doing a Youth Boys Life Camp for the past five years. I've been with him as a partner for the past two years, and we do a summer program, three-day summer program in the summer um, between Midwest City and Dale City, within Oklahoma City, and um, it's dope. One thing that um, with the Youth Boys Life Camp um, that's very – that I just love about it, I've been around a lot of boys' camps and conferences, and, and some of it looks – Nothing about it a lot of times looks personal. Uh, one thing DeMarco has been able to do is um, he personalizes everything, like from little jerseys to name tags where the boys are going to sit. That's um, cool. Yeah, so Thoughtful. You know, work. Yeah, exactly. He's a graphic designer, so he just, he just, matter of fact, that's how he learned to be a graphic designer because when he first did it, he, the first year he did it, he spent so much money uh, with different graphic designers trying to make his, his, um, his dream coming to fruition and he was like, man, let me learn from this myself. And now he's a graphic designer who makes over six figures at home, you know, of graphic design. But, but it, it really started from him wanting to do this in the community <laughs> and giving other people too much of his money mm-hmm. trying to make it happen. <laughs> but anyway, so the kids, you know, they, they're able to see, and this is a seven year old, seven to 13 year old boys. It's a three day evening camp. And uh, uh, the first day, they're all dressed up, shirt and tie, and we teach them about manners, shaking, uh, how to shake hands, uh, just some manhood stuff. Um, And we also uh, teach them CPR. Uh, We teach them uh, financial literacy. We teach them a few different things. Uh, Also, and that's the first day. So the second day is all athletics. And we teach them, uh, we teach them nutrition. Um, We do a lot of different drills. It's all outside. Uh, We find the biggest um, the biggest uh, playground we can with, 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 with grass and we play we play games with them, run drills with them and they love it. And we teach them nutrition uh, stuff, you know, how to eat healthy, uh, talk about fruits, vegetables, uh, drinking plenty of water and hydration. And then the third day we celebrate them. So we'll give different awards out. Um, and we have a, like a banquet situation where, where their parents come in and sit and we uh, give them awards and and not just participation awards, you know. If some if some men, um, if, if if some young men had you know most improvement uh, to to uh, a standout leader, um, um, show selfless skills. I mean, you know, it's, it's a few different categories that we cover, uh, but then we also give everybody something they can take home with them uh, as a as a as a representation of the camp with their name on it. Um, so the, just the thoughtfulness that DeMarco poured into the vision, which is funny because when we met, it was on some graphic design stuff for my poetry. And then we started talking and I told him about my vision for boys camp. And he was like, I already do that. And I said, what? (laughs) And, and, you know, most black people on surreal, we rather, we rather be the face of it. So we'll go and recreate something that's already going instead of just joining with that person and trying to make it huge with that port- collaborative with that collaborative yes. partnership yeah so i you know i said you know what at that at, when we met that time i said uh and this was 
uh, we met three years ago and I was like, you know what? I just want to be a part of it, man. However I can be a part of it. So I originally just jumped on being the financial literacy portion of it. And then, um, and then I stepped in and he just, he really dug how I just jumped in there as a leader and really helped him. And he was like, man, you want to be my partner? And ever since then we've been, we've been partners on it. But, um, uh, I, I really love that, that, that summer camp because it, uh, I, I have boys around, around the city that let me know when they see me around, I'm ready for the summer camp. So we're trying to, uh, develop it where we do it more than just the summer. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll do, maybe we'll do something with them quarterly or something like that. Um, but even with that, what I what I'm going to do this year is the the most improved and some of the others that just really show leadership. I'm going to take them and I'm gonna, and I'm gonna, um, I'm going to bring them up to OU where they can go into the locker room, the football locker room, and the um, and the stadium and stuff. I'm going to reward them. Uh, so that's what I plan to do this year. I'm trying to take advantage of of this this OU. Uh, ability I have now. Yeah, because exposure, again, oh, yeah. exposure. As soon as you get comfortable, you see college campuses at a young age, it's not overwhelming anymore. Right. I've been to right. a university. I've been to a this. I've been to that. You've mentioned so many um, different people that you've partnered with along this journey as your gifts have continued to like open doors for you. Your story is incredible. I really enjoyed hearing it. Is there or are there any black teachers that you would like to thank specifically for pouring into you? Hmm. <laughs> That's hard because uh, I really haven't had too many black teachers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, big shout outs to um, uh, Pastor and Dr. Um, Coleman, uh, he has uh, his church is Fifth Street Baptist Church on the east side of uh, Oklahoma City, but he also uh, teaches African American studies, a few different subjects at OU. Um, Miss uh, Miss Crystal uh, Carter Perkins, uh, she I did a lot of work at Langston University, now she's been at OU University. She's a she's a huge um, just man asset for me in my life, man, just a blessing in my life because uh, she she also has her own. Um, publishing company crystal crystal publishing and self-publishing and she helped me get my book out um and and she's just man she's just a wealth of knowledge um who else um dr uh frederick hammond um he's out at uco uh he's a kappa as well and and he poured into me ever since we met through the bmi um program and he's just Man, he's just been a blessing when it comes to resources, networking, um, just still working on my own manhood as a 35 year old man. You know, you still should try to continue to evolve. And I've seen everything that he's accomplished um, with his multiple master's degrees and his doctor degree. And uh, he's something I want to aspire to be. Man, and then, and then uh, shout out to uh, Dr. Chris Emdom. You know, he's kind of like a virtual mentor to me. I watch what he do, and we have conversations uh, through Instagram. Um, but it's only been a few. I mean, I honestly don't have. We, I just didn't have that representation. You know, I didn't have that representation, and and I guess it means a lot for me to be able to turn around and pour into the next generation that's coming because. I know what I didn't have. And that's why that's why I developed Brothers for Progress, my nonprofit, is because me and my best friend, Dr. Kenneth Chapman, we've been best friends since uh, second grade. And um, and both of us with our crazy student loan debt as as adults. Now we're like, man, all these different resources that I never knew was there that could have helped with all this damn debt. We wouldn't even be in this debt if we knew at least half of these resources that uh, our white peers knew of. And these are white peers that's already affluent, but they already knew how to get free stuff. Yep. Uh, they are. They are. They're. They're. they're people have money. They yep. could. They could pay for their education, but because of their resources, their networking, and their parents and such, um, they didn't have to. They didn't have to. So even be able to even being able to work the uh, the military system, you know, it's it's affluent white folks that go into the military for the free stuff, and we have to have that strategic mindset to to go into these same spaces and be intentional on getting our money <laughs> and getting things for free. And, and, and what are the resources that they're not telling us? And, and how can we be, how can we be mindful enough to go get those and go research all the things that, that people are just showing up to PWI campuses and getting handed? It's like, how do we step into 
the opportunity and receive the privilege that comes with that opportunity. Cause usually we don't have any privilege. Yep. So it's like, no, here you are in a, in an in, in empowered state. You have access to privilege. Go yep. get it. But a lot of times we don't know we got access. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it means, and it really means it doesn't mean a lot. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's one thing that I, that I learned now is it doesn't mean a lot that you can get accepted to a PWI when you get there, you go into crazy debt. Yes. And, or you I mean, don't graduate. Before you even graduate. Before you even graduate. I, I remember I remember I was a fifth year at OU. I was a fifth year. I was about to finish up. I had uh, basically four and a half, uh, four and a half years. And before I even walked the stage, Sally May called me talking about when can I start my 500 a month payments. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I literally laughed at the woman and said, I, I don't even have a job yet. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I just laughed at the lady. And I, I think I was, what, uh, about 20, 21, 22? Yep. And I was like, Man, you can't be serious. You can't be serious. I don't even have a real job yet. And I was still a teller at uh, Tinker for the Credit Union. And I just, and you know, just over time, I was like, man, I want to be in a space where any type of cheat code I can give the next generation. I want to be able to give it to them because nobody was there to give it to me. Um, so that's that's a, a huge piece of uh, my passion and my why is to is to provide resources, provide uh, the chess moves for the next people for the next uh, uh, young folks right behind us that's coming. Um, you know, and I always tell people, you know, I'm not I'm not that far removed. You know, and I'm talking to people that was born in 2000. Mm -hmm. You know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You know, born in 2003, and I'm like, oh, my God, you're in college. You were born when I was graduating high school. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I tell them, you know, I'm not I'm not too far removed. I understand what it what it means to be in college and be broke and already accruing uh, all this debt. And, you know, you have all this stuff going on. You know, you have finals, midterms, papers, um, uh, you know women problems, men problems. I know you're going through it. Family problems. You know, I know you're going through it all. And sometimes I think we, as adults, we underestimate what, what, uh, young college kids are going through, but they got a lot on their shoulders. Um, so I, I'm, I'm just blessed to be in a space where now I can help with those resources and, and I can be, I can be the reason why a, a young 22 year old from Houston, from a bad background, can graduate college making 85 grand off back. You know, I'm, I'm that person now, yep. <laughs> and I, you know, and, and that, that feels real good to be able to pour in something like that on a regular and really, uh, really see where your work is going to, you know, cause when I was in corporate America, you know, I was negotiating million dollar, dang near billion dollar deals. And it didn't mean anything to me. It was just like another day. Um, but to to see the the evolution of a new student uh, and become a young professional that's about to go out here and tear the world up and make great money while they doing it, man, that's that's huge for me. That's legacy. That's, for me. that's legacy work. <laughs> yeah, so that's huge for me. Thank you for coming on the show. I'm going to do something a little bit differently. I'm going to ask you, and I didn't tell you I was going to do this, but you've <laughs> mentioned your poetry quite a few times. I think uh, it would only be fair if we, um, if you told listeners like where they can follow you on social media, where they can connect with you to find out more about your organization and your book, and then also give us a little piece. So I'm going to say my clothes, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. So thank you again for coming on the show. Really loved hearing about your story and excited to see what you continue to do for black males everywhere and all your students. Um, yeah. Everything that you do, it is, it was, and it always will be worth it. So thank you. And now I'm turning it over to you to hit us with info where we can follow you, where we can connect with you and give us one of your pieces. Right on, right on. All right, my name is Courtney McClain. You can find me on LinkedIn and Facebook. Courtney McLean, C-O-R-D-N-E-Y, no U or T, <laughs> M uh, McLean, M-C-C-L-A-I-N, or you can find me um, on Instagram at Mac underscore M-A-C underscore since 1985. You can also have a website as www.MacWoodsInc. Inc is I-N-K, 
com, and you can reach out and, and connect and see um, um, see a lot of my videos on there. I'm a part of a group called Poetic City. It's like four rappers, um, 20 poets, uh, mostly mostly queens doing their thing. And, and we also do poetic dramas and plays uh, where the whole thing is poetry. Um, and we've been doing that a little bit, and we're trying to make some rounds and reach the different cities, uh, but we're pushing. Um, one piece I'll share with you is uh, it's called Keep Dreaming. It is a play on uh, being woke and, and conscious of your surroundings. There's no medicine for a cure with no need. This is how ignorance becomes an evolving disease. Sheep, keep dreaming. Clinging to the wool, clear view coming soon. Can't wake from your truth. Sheep, keep dreaming. We power napping. We power napping within flames just to see if we can still feel. Jack and sons that get zipped up in deep red pain never heard. Walking lifeless black bodies, just some thriller zombies result. I found darkness door on too many chances. Watched my uncles cook up crack and thought it was the answer. Came with the darkest cloud. Yeah, I'm a skilled rain dancer. Deemed a bad seed from the wound, they call me ovarian cancer. Processed like a felon for the hundredth time. I never looked for trouble, I was followed by. Pulled out the car, searched and beaten within three-fifths of my life. Then they planted a hundred pounds of misery and told me to bite the curve. See, American X had always been our history. Sheep, keep dreaming. My little cousin failed all year and still passed. Oklahoma, this is how our children get left behind, institutionalized with glorified diplomas. Just to be stoned, strung up, and crucified. And death is hard, but living is harder. Reading poetic remedies, wondering if the author truly feels like dying, and the young mind replies, well, damn, he or she feels the way I am. An insomniac doing math with sleep. One sheep. How we so free and still so demonized? Two sheep with no alibi victimized because prejudice is so normalized. Three sheep ripping through the tissue of my heart and fragments of my mind. Four sheep. How early we fall into realm. So when a teacher asks what he wants to be when he grows up, he just says a lie. Became the only child with a million siblings, all of them named adversity. I found that these vision killers put interest on our dreams, then murder all unsubsidized. It took more hours. It took more hours, but I mastered the fear. And learn to slumber with open eyes. There's immunity in getting no sleep. The pale glass sitting looked down like, God damn, who taught this nigga how to think? Result? Alarm clock from five to four. Pull your feet back to bed after the floor. Pull the blanket back over you and warm yourself with your unconscious lies. But boy, don't you dare close your eyes. Sheep, keep dreaming. This is Mac Woods. Again, you can reach me at Mac underscore since 1985 on Instagram, www.macwoodsinc.com. And I'm very appreciative to have me, Danielle. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode of Black Educators Matter. Remember, make excellence equitable and thank a black teacher today. <laughs>